0: Hey, Tate. Hey, Dad. What's up? Uh, You know how you helped me with the summer theme music? Yeah? I thought maybe you'd like to help me out with a demo for season three. Uh, I was working on something that Patrick kind of blew off at the start of season two, and I thought maybe if you add a little bit of sax. Ooh, sure. Maybe. Are you sure Patrick's okay with
1: this, though, since he bumped my theme music
0: last season? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just a demo. You know the song Battle Without Honor or Humanity, right? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to start, and then you come in with the horn. You ready? All right uh
1: that's interesting but i just really wish that i could do my own theme song again you know yeah i know buddy hey guys hey quinn hey quinn what are you guys talking about Patrick bumped me from the Quantitude theme music last season. So you want to do the music for season three? Well, yeah. Why are you asking? Well, remember when Patrick stayed in our house when we weren't here? Yeah. Why? You know how we have those nanny cams around the house? Yes. <laughs> Check out this video I pulled from one of their hard drives when he stayed here. Oh. What? Oh. The? Is that some kind of like yoga? I think that's his trumpet. You know what this is, don't you? Disturbing? No. Well, I mean, yes, totally. But dude, this is your ticket. What? Seems to me Patrick's gonna be okay with you doing pretty much whatever you want. Uh, Quinn, I totally owe you. Oh oh god, Quinn, please just turn that off. (gasps) Looks like Tate Sweet Tea Hancock is back for season three.
0: Hi everybody, welcome to season three. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my friend Patrick Curran, who is uncomfortably familiar with legal proceedings, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this first episode of Season 3, we argue a bit about the concept of statistical conclusion validity, what it is, what affects it, and how it fits in with other types of validity. Along the way, we also mention Frogfest 2021, Fostering Illusions, Coughing up a thorax, entree versus entry, 50 hours of community service, eight hour depositions, statistical herpes, and Cheesecake Factory menus and calorie counts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. So tell me, my friend, how many frogs did you catch last night? <laughs> You know, I'm not going to answer that until you explain to people why you are asking that question, and then I will answer your question. What was it? Last week, I guess. One of my kids
2: has a friend in DC. They've not seen each other in a couple of years. I drove her up, dumped her at her friend's house and showed up on your doorstep <laughs> yes, you somewhat did. unannounced. <laughs> It was announced, but mostly as a text message from (laughs) I-95. Be there in 40 minutes. (laughs) You were kind enough to take me in. Mm -hmm. First or second evening there, we're sitting out on your back patio. A thunderstorm is coming in. Every time there was a flash of lightning, you were going 1,001, 1,002 <laughs> to see true. how far <laughs> it was. Because I learned that in fourth grade. Because absolutely, you're not going to get struck by lightning if there's more than a two-second delay. That's I right. mean, everybody That's right. knows totally that.
0: Totally safe. Totally safe.
2: We're gathering up things to go in, and out hops a frog. And out hops another frog. <laughs> And it became Old Testament biblical Seriously, of these frogs coming out. And then the skies crack and open with rain yep. and thunder and lightning. And you and I are inundated with yeah, frogs everywhere. To your wife's chagrin has her face pressed against the glass <laughs> and is waving at us to come inside, (laughs) you and I run around in a torrential thunderstorm trying to catch frogs.
0: Yes, we do. (laughs) So that's the background to my how many frogs were last night. So now, my answer to your question is, since that night, since Frog Fest 2021... I have not seen or heard a single frog in the backyard. That means two things to me. One, clearly it was a biblical event. (laughs) And two, you scared the hell out of the frogs, so they're never coming back. (laughs) And I got to
2: tell you, I thought that I was unable to make your wife look at me and shake her head any more than I already had achieved And I was wrong. Yep. You and I walked into the kitchen dripping on the floor and she looked at us, shook her head and just walked out of the room. Yep. But how many
0: frogs did she catch? (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? I don't know what this says about my summer, but that was one of the highlights of my summer.
2: One thing we did during Frog Fest 2021 was come up with a list of possible oh, topics, yeah. which I'm hoping one of us wrote down because we sure talked about it for a long time. Uh, that was you, yeah, right?
0: It's, fu- uh, it's fine. We'll do it's something fine. on T-Test. <laughs> but we got all sorts of things we want to do. We did. You know, part of it is that people contact us throughout the year and make suggestions for ideas for episodes. And sometimes we're able to weave some of those in, but I am just delighted to say that we have a, big old list of
2: topics. Yeah, so we'll do some topics that Greg and I argue about. We're going to loop in some experts because Mm. by like episode four in season one, we had pretty much tapped our own. Oh, yeah. Now, that didn't stop us from doing 70 more episodes, but you know, (laughs) setting that aside, we'll check in with some people who we talked to on earlier episodes, and then we got some new features that we're going to try to weave in. We're not going to say what they are, mostly because you should see (laughs) the number of plans we write down and then don't do anything with yes and so we're just going to be ambiguous that there will be
0: new features best not to say it out loud right
2: validity what i love validity i'm tired of talking about other stuff i want to talk about
0: this stuff we've talked about validity before you might not remember this but I'm pretty sure we've had at least a couple of episodes on validity. Okay, the number of times, and I'm
2: not exaggerating on this, that I have excitedly (laughs) texted you about a show topic, and all you text back is (laughs) S2E14. I'm
1: like, oh. Yeah,
2: Yeah, that's right. But in fairness to me, it shows it was a good idea for an episode. You can't take that away from me. We have talked about validity. One of my favorite books on the face of the planet is Cooking Campbell. Mm -hmm. They have an updated version of it, and that's what I mean is really shadish Cooking Campbell. But when I was a grad student, I got Cooking Campbell, and that's how it's always burned upon my mind. I feel like we could navigate our entire professional career, whether it be our own work, reviewing articles, reviewing grants, writing grants, all through the lens of validity. Yeah. Internal, external construct, and statistical conclusion done now since you're the keeper of the flame which ones have we already talked about
0: <laughs> we had an episode in season one called the internal validity pre-flight checklist it was episode 26 season one and then at the end of last season season two toward the end anyway we got into construct validity with our episode number 33 of season two truth balderdash and construct validity there remain two types of validity though that were on your list with regard to external validity I would say external validity has been this theme, this motif that has been in the air through so much of what we talked about. One of the episodes that we had with Laura Stapleton, for example, that had to do with sampling really did touch upon external validity through the lens of sampling. And maybe we should give external validity a bit more treatment but not today, because today is about statistical conclusion validity. There you go.
2: Remember, if you want to be intolerably self-righteous, which we all really do because we're in <laughs> academics and that's a cornerstone <laughs> of our profession. And you're in the right place. <laughs> you're in the right place. This is another one you should have at your fingertips, is to be able to give, even colloquially, a brief one-sentence definition of each of those four types of validity. I'll give it a go, Greg, and then you can correct me as you usually do. Uh- <laughs> and I'm going to go colloquially, okay. all right, as we can look up fancier ones. But colloquially, internal validity is the validity of the inference that A causes B. All right, so it's the validity that relates to if you state there's a causal relation, Mm -hmm. that in reality there actually is a causal relation. External validity is the extent to which you can generalize your findings across person, place, and time. Mm -hmm. Construct validity is the extent to which you are measuring what you think you are measuring. Statistical conclusion validity, for lack of a better definition, in my eyes is, Mm -hmm. did you screw up your stats? (laughs) Is that what they said? No, I think Cook and Campbell expanded a little. I might be introducing certain efficiencies in that Uh definition, but oh boy, I need to grab my shovel and go in the backyard. Hang Uh on a second. (laughs) No, wait a minute. Who are you digging up now? Okay, I'm back. I have got John Stuart Mill. (laughs) Now, as you pointed out earlier, there are entire wings of libraries dedicated to causal inference. And we're not even going to touch on that here. All right, mostly because I'm incapable. But (laughs) if I say there's not enough time, at least it fosters the illusion I could if I had time available.
0: I'm not sure anyone has that illusion. (laughs)
2: You know I can mute you at any time, <laughs> right? There's a reason why I'm the one who sets uh-huh. up the Zoom. But anyway, John Stuart Mill's corpse that I've propped up in the corner, and I'm going to go colloquial again because I didn't look up the real ones. There are three core conditions for inferring causality. Mm-hmm. The cause needs to temporarily precede the effect. The cause needs to be demonstrably related to the effect. Mm -hmm. We can talk about that the cause co-varies with the effect is a simple way of saying it. Mm -hmm. And then the third that keeps us all loving the jobs that we have is there are no plausible alternative
0: explanations. Yes.
2: And that's what makes it fun to get up in the morning, is (laughs) what is a plausible alternative? What evidence is there? Model comparison, all this.
0: And magically, we've ruled all the rest of them out, right?
2: Exactly. The second condition is that the cause co-varies with the effect. Often people will say that's what statistical conclusion validity is primarily related to, whether you establish there is an effect or you do not not establish there's an effect. It is the validity of the inference of that conclusion about
0: statistical
2: covariation.
0: I will say, and I don't want to get too deep into this, but I have a little bit of an issue with that second condition. And John, can I call him John? He prefers JS. JS. Okay. JS should feel free to speak up at any time if he disagrees with Uh,
2: my. (laughs) (laughs) No, he's cool that okay. <laughs> we're eight minutes into uh-huh. episode one, and you're already dismissing John Stuart Mill. But please,
0: go right ahead. Right. So I don't actually think that an X and a Y need to covary for there to be a causal relation between the two. I think sometimes X can have a positive effect on something and then be negatively associated with something else that has an effect. And in the end, you get this net cancellation so that you can't demonstrate a relation between the two at some zero-order level. And it's not until you start the act of trying to control all the other explanations, whether it's by design or by analysis, that the causal connection of X and Y actually becomes more manifest. So I think that second thing, unless he meant something different by it, and again, I'm waiting to hear him gargle, I have a little bit of an issue with that second one.
2: Well, JS did just cough up part of his thorax, and so I'm going to take that as some degree of disagreement. Okay. So again, I've got a Cook and Campbell lens. There are a hundred other lenses of looking through this, but mine is right because I'm talking. Yeah. If you were to say that there is no statistical relation between X and Y that is observed, Mm -hmm. yet X still... Causes why, I would say that that would represent a threat to statistical conclusion validity that you have omitted variables that are in the process or that you have not adequately incorporated covariates that would highlight that. So to conclude that there is no numerical relation between X and Y actually is statistical invalidity because you improperly modeled that relation and are making an incorrect inference about the relation between the cause and the effect.
0: Well, I think that that is a beautiful entree then. Entree? Entree? Entree is something you eat. (laughs) I think it's a beautiful starting point into the conversation about statistical conclusion validity then. I like that a lot. So what was your colloquial version of this that... Did you you screw up up the stats? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we're going (laughs) to... We're gonna spend an hour talking about ways you can screw up the stats. Is that our? Is that what this has come to? I, can I just uh-huh. go with yes? Good. So let me ask this question to get us started. Okay, and I don't know if it's a fair one to ask, but sometimes when you do research, you reach the wrong conclusion, right? And by that, I mean sometimes you reach a conclusion that doesn't match what truth is, and sometimes that's the result of doing something wrong statistically. And sometimes it's just the way the dice fell that particular time. So, when we talk about statistical conclusion validity, do you think about it in terms of the actual conclusion or the process that we use to reach that conclusion or both?
2: Oh, that's like a summer of love, trippy, acid acid question. I really don't know. I mean, that level is kind of above my pay grade. It seems like it's almost skating out onto the philosophy of science part of the ice rink that I'm not allowed to go. There's actually a little rope that is there and doesn't let me go out on that part of the lake.
0: (laughs) So you have a dead philosopher in the corner of the room right now, and you're not going to go out on the road. Okay, that's fine.
2: Dude, anybody with a shovel and a flashlight (laughs) can have their own dead philosopher.
0: All right, so let me ask you this. When you ask an undergraduate to distinguish between internal validity and statistical conclusion validity, what kinds of things are you hoping that that person will say?
2: I'm really after on the statistical conclusion stuff that is bread and butter of what our job is. Mm -hmm. All right, so in Shadish Cooking Campbell, they've got a table and they have nine threats to statistical conclusion validity. And I would like the student to navigate those. What are clear and present danger mistakes that we can make in the statistical analysis of our data Mm -hmm. that would in some way undermine our ability to claim the presence of an effect or the absence of an effect based on our numerical data. That's really (laughs) what I see statistical conclusion is that in the trenches kind of what analytical decisions did you make? What are characteristics Mm -hmm. of your model? What are characteristics of your measurement and did some of those in some way undermine your ability to make a valid inference about the relation between X and Y? Hmm.
0: Through a statistical lens, can we use those nine to seed our conversation?
2: I think we can start, although I don't think those are exhaustive, and I've got okay. a handful of others that I would throw onto the fire. Oh, I would love that. I queued it up here while you were rambling on about something <laughs> or another. <laughs> Table two point two
0: uh-huh. in
2: Shadish Cooking Campbell number one. Mm-hmm. This would make a great episode topic. <laughs> low power. Okay, can I react to that right out of the gate? That was the hope because I got nothing more than <laughs> low power. Low power.
1: <laughs> it was very
0: dramatic. But thank though. you. I wonder if that is statistical conclusion.
2: Oh, dude, you are in a serious adversarial role today. I'm not. I so shut up. up. You're not even I am not. You're not even gonna accept my <laughs> definition of statistical conclusion validity and then you are gonna dismiss the number one threat uh-huh. being statistical power.
0: No, please, mm-hmm. continue. Here's a quick reaction that I have to it, and that is whether or not there's a distinction between Statistical conclusion validity and maybe something we could call like design validity. There are some aspects of designs where we have low power. Is that a statistical issue or is that a design issue? I don't know if you have a reaction to that or just leave that hanging there. (laughs) Okay. Um, One of the better articulations you've had. If it's the case that we have low power... We have to think about all the different reasons that arise, and I think that some of those could very easily be classified as statistical conclusion validity, but others like design, maybe statistical, maybe not. One of the things that you and I have talked about at great length, I would say, back in season one, we had a whole episode That was the issue of reliability, and I think that it is a problem statistically when people are using measures that are horribly unreliable and that that compromises power. To me, that clearly falls under the auspices of statistical conclusion validity.
2: I like how you make up an entire new area of validity just on the fly (laughs) with your feet up on your desk is, you know, don't mind Uh a century of work on this is design Uh validity. Dude. I see your point. Greg, I hear you. <laughs> I respect okay. you.
1: Ah,
0: Dr. And what Michelle. you
2: say has meaning to me. Check that box is done. Yeah, there you go. And? But I see these inextricably combined. I think it starts turning into a subsetting. Okay, so we have power. What is the probability you're going to find an effect if an effect really exists in the population? Mm. Okay, cool. The number one thing people go to is, oh, well, you need more subjects. Mm. All right, drives me crazy. Students out there, please, never, ever, 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 ever write in a limitation section that it might be more likely you would have found an effect if you had a larger sample size. Mm. The number of times I have seen some variation of that sentence, Mm -hmm. all right, you will have a higher probability of finding an effect if you have a larger sample size. Yes. All right, so that's just a given. Mm -hmm. But as we've talked in prior episodes and that comes up in a lot of different literatures, there are many, many reasons why we might have low power. Mm-hmm. One of which is sample size, but you've done wonderful work yourself on reliability and number of indicators and determinacy and all of these things that can increase power. We've talked about holding a sample size constant, but adding repeated measures in a longitudinal mm-hmm. design that increases power. The weirdness, and I don't know how many of you have had a professor who's done this or some kind of instructor because it's a little bit like matrix, like we're, Neo sees the matrix is that you bring in covariates as a predictor, and that actually increases the power of your other covariates in the model because you're reducing error variance. It doesn't make sense on the surface because you're making it harder to predict Mm -hmm. unique variability in the dependent variable, but it actually increases power because you're reducing your mean squared error by including these covariates. I think all of these come into statistical conclusions. Some are design features, some are measurement features, mm-hmm. some are statistical modeling features. And how Cook and Campbell talk about this is you're either trying to conclude there is an effect or there is not an effect. Mm-hmm. And holy cow, if you're looking at the usual suspects of who are you going to pull in and talk to, the very first one is what was the probability right out of the gate that you were going to find an effect if an effect
0: really existed? Okay, so now I'm going to come back to poking at you. I waited for you to talk, um, which is
2: not <laughs> listening. <laughs> it's not, I, I learned that from you on a prior episode.
0: <laughs> All right, so here's a question for you. Imagine someone has designed a study genuinely that has. What's your favorite power level? Do you like 0.80? Do you like 0.90? Point what do eight, you generally? Two, four. Yes. Okay. So someone has designed a study with a power level of 0.824, and they run the study, and they don't find anything. Is that a problem as far as statistical conclusion validity is concerned? No. And that's because why? I'd like to hear why you think that's the (laughs) case. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it comes back to the very first thing that I asked, and that is whether or not statistical conclusion validity is really about the conclusion itself or about the process. And I know that if I have 0.824 power, that means I have a 0.176 chance of a type 2 error. So that would mean that a type 2 error is not technically an example of statistical conclusion validity, because really what we appear to be talking about is the validity of the process, the architecture of things that we're laying out.
2: Mm, okay. So if you're going to be pissy with me, I'm going to be pissy <laughs> with you. Okay. One thing that Cook and Campbell emphasize, and I don't mean to be a one-trick pony with their view, but it's just something that I like and I'm comfortable with. Sure, sure. Is all of the discussions of their validities relate to... To the valence of the inference. Hmm. So, you don't say a design is valid. Hmm. You don't say a sample is valid. It's the inference that you're making from your sample, from your measurement, from your analyses, from your numerical results. That's why it's frustrating to say, well, it's an invalid design. Mm-hmm. All right. It's kind of like saying, well, there aren't bad people, they're just people who do bad things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would actually very strongly argue in support of that, it is a characteristic of the inference that if you are going to do your study and conclude there is not a relation between X and Y, and you have low power, then I would say that is a threat to the statistical conclusion validity you are making about the absence of a causal relation in your data.
0: And if you enter a study with high power and you still fail to find something?
2: Yes, sometimes you get 10 heads in a
0: row. I mean, welcome to life. Yes, exactly. So for me, your conclusion is invalid, but your process actually wasn't invalid. That's my little conundrum with all of this.
2: And I'm yeah. totally on board with it, but it's not a conundrum to me. I'm going to self-define that conundrum away because I agree with you. I absolutely agree mm-hmm. with you. But I am going to restrict the threats to validity to the valence of the inference itself. Mm-hmm. And I can say, well, the reason you had low power was because of this design feature that you had. But the threat is you saying there's not an effect because... Because that's the inference that you're making based upon your numerical results. Okay. Permission
0: to ask you to go to number two.
2: Well, we don't have to do necessarily these point by point because you start seeing the pattern. Sure. We've talked before. You can learn eighty percent of stats by looking for general rules and looking for patterns. All right. Number two, they talk about violated assumptions.
0: Oh, yeah. Right.
2: So is this a reflection of the design? Is it a reflection of the analysis? Or again, are you making some conclusion about the absence or presence of an effect? And that conclusion is in part negatively impacted because you screwed up the independence assumption,
0: or some normality of residuals. Am I just punchy today? I don't know. I don't know if I'm in a mood. I see pluses and minuses to what you just said. Can I open that can of worms a little bit?
2: Beyond what you already did? <laughs>
0: You're looking at me like, oh, this is going to be a long episode. we got
2: another <laughs> hour of recording it's
0: Yeah. All right. How dare you say? What? It's an outrage, <laughs> sir. Um, all right, here we go. And this ties back to what I was saying in the previous point that you made. I think that when we enter into statistics, there's a certain amount of, I know that I can make an error at the end of all of this. That is to say that when everything is designed perfectly, there's still a shot. That means that when every assumption is met, there is still a shot. I enter into this whole process as a statistician saying there is a chance that I will make an error. Not only do I accept that, but I actually embrace that. I embrace that to the extent that I don't want to make an error too often, but I also have designed everything so that an error is something that is a possible outcome. So for me, one of the issues about statistical conclusion validity, and it ties to power and it ties to what you're talking about right now, is whether or not there are conditions out there in the world that are going to make what my expectations are with regard to making these errors, it makes them inaccurate. And one of the things that does that, which is I think the point that you're raising right now, is when we violate assumptions, when we violate homoscedasticity or independence of observations or normality or all of those things, does it start to tip the scales in a way that we are going to make those errors in some proportion that is other than what we accept? So if we... Design a study and say, oh, looks like we got 0.80 power. Sorry, 0.824. Was that it? Yes, please. We have <laughs> 0.824 power under typical assumptions. Great. But if those typical assumptions don't hold, then if all of a sudden we have 0.6 power, then I think we have a problem. I think that is really encroaching on our statistical conclusion validity because it's not in alignment with what we bought into, what we have designed. Fair so far or not?
2: Well, I think you're being really nicely adversarial and saying exactly what I believe. Mm -hmm. I would argue that you have precisely defined what statistical conclusion validity is. Is there something that undermines your inference that you're making about the relation between X and Y? So if you conclude there's a meaningful relation between X and Y, that could be because that's the truth as God sees it, and you properly Mm -hmm. captured a population effect. What are threats to that conclusion that you've made? Well, one is you blew your independence assumption, your standard errors are too small, your critical ratio is too big, and you've identified a spurious effect. That is a threat to the validity of the inference that you observed a numerical covariation between X and Y. I feel like mm-hmm. we're saying exactly the same thing, but you're just being prissy
0: about it. I <laughs> Both can be true. <laughs> I think that I am not talking about statistical conclusion validity in terms of the ultimate inference. I think that I'm talking about it in terms of the process where I'm operationalizing the process in terms of essentially the error rates that we're willing to accept for ourselves. So if we aim for 0.824 power and we don't get 0.824 power, I have a problem with that. If we say that we are willing to enter in with a type one error rate, and we'll probably unpack that, I don't know their list, but that's in there somewhere. Somewhere, I'm sure. If we enter in with an acceptable nominal type 1 error rate of 0.05, but conditions in the world are such that we will make a type 1 error 0.10 of the time or 0.15 of the time, then it's not ultimately the fact that I make a mistake as a conclusion, it's that the deal is now changing. And that is what bothers me. So to me, it's not so much statistical conclusion validity as it is altering the probabilities of events.
2: How are those different, though? I agree with everything that you said. Yeah. Am I missing like a more macro
0: issue here? Which is very common, I know. (laughs) Let me just completely make something up to get your reaction.
2: Which you haven't been doing thus far. You're making up your
0: own forms of validity. Uh, Okay, okay. So I have a hypothetical for you.
2: I really (laughs) hate these okay i have a real scenario it's not the hypothetical part that concerns me this is how i ended up doing 50 hours of community service (laughs) when a lawyer said so let me pose a story for you and just follow along all right so please go ahead
0: imagine that you designed a study that had 0.30 power and your study reached the correct conclusion It happened to be one of those studies that found the correct association between X and Y. Is there a statistical conclusion validity problem? No. Okay. You define it entirely in terms of the inference at the end. Yes. All right. That might be where we differ. And that's a good thing for me to understand going in, the limitations of your ability to think more divergently. That's helpful for me. Thank you.
2: Yes. (laughs) Sorry, I went into subpoena mode. Uh (laughs) Yes, your honor. (laughs) You are on the stand. Do you know what time it is? Yes, your honor. That's exactly right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Asked and answered.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> Again, I don't have the book in front of me because my feet are on my desk and I'm too lazy to go reach out for it. I think this is becoming one of those Bill Clinton, it depends how you define is. So your scenario of you design a study with a power of 0.3 and you find an effect, mm-hmm. and you conclude, and this is the operative part for me, you make an inference that there is a demonstrable relation between X and Y, then low power is in that instance for that inference does not pose a threat to statistical conclusion validity because you properly concluded that the observed numerical relation between X and Y is as it exists in the population. Now, we're playing this as God sees it because, of course, we don't know what the population is. We don't know if there are moderators. We don't know any of these things. Mm -hmm. But the validity relates to a specific inference that is being made about the relation between the two variables. That's what I'm going to double down on.
0: Let's see how far this gets you. What else you got on your list there, smart guy?
2: Well, you know what? I'm going to quit reading them because okay. they're just a wonderful laundry list of ways we can screw up. Alright, <laughs> so wh- I've got their list here. Read, and just then rattle them off. I'm just going to rattle them off and we've got their list here and then you know what? Sitting on the back deck last night, I have a yellow sticky in front of me i put Mm -hmm. my own oh really well if you can make up entire fields of validity i can come up with a couple nickel and dime threats (laughs) okay geez these are all things that a quantity person should be able to say what are a dozen ways you can screw up your analyses so going down their list alpha inflation and fishing for findings unreliability Restriction of range, right? That's an undergrad issue that you talk about is why is SAT and GPA not correlated in college? That's restriction of range. Mm -hmm. But then they get into some because they're really focused on treatment implementation. So unreliability of treatment implementation, extraneous variance, heterogeneity among units, inaccurate effect size estimation. I think that one's kind of cool. But out on my yellow sticky, I've got outliers, model misspecification, omitted moderators, omitted committed non-linearity and link function or relation between X and Y. The wrong model selection that you did a latent curve model when you should have done some other kind of model. Poor model building strategies. You're a cat with a laser pointer on modification indices. Oversimplifying models where you're not building a model that adequately represents the characteristics of the data that you have. We could put 20 more things on Mm -hmm. what is bad business practice when you're analyzing data. Those are all
0: threats to statistical conclusion validity.
2: Go ahead and disagree, please.
0: (laughs) Um, No, they are all threats to statistical conclusion validity. So what is the take-home message from that list? Is it don't do that? Don't up your analyses (laughs) i mean really people it's not that hard (laughs) all right so uh, is it okay if i just keep playing devil's advocate do i have a choice do you mind would that bother you too much (sighs) there was a time when the t-test was the coin of the realm and people might say in that point in time that they are comfortable with statistical conclusion validity even though statistical conclusion validity wasn't articulated formally at the time of the t-test One could say, yes, we are using a t-test because it is a statistical comparison of the means, and before we didn't have this. And Gossett moved us from a Z to a T, and all of a sudden we would say that the statistical conclusion validity has improved. Is that fair? In
2: a given application. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I'm going to double down on, is these yeah. aren't global statements about a statistical model. It's about a yeah. conclusion you are drawing from a given sample. So if you had 25 units and you move mm-hmm. from a Z to a T, yes, you improve the statistical conclusion validity. If you had a 1,000 units and move from a Z to a T, pfft,
0: Who cares? How do you know I improved the statistical conclusion validity if I haven't told you what the conclusion of the test was? You haven't. I haven't improved the conclusion validity?
2: I actually Uh have been deposed. Uh An (laughs) eight-hour deposition, and I'm not going to describe where that came from. I feel like I am in one right now. Uh No, you're exactly right. You would have to tell me what that conclusion was. And again, Mm -hmm. it's not a characteristic in my eyes of the design or the distribution or the expected value of a non-central chi. It relates to if you move from a Z to a T, I would say you are better able to make us valid inference in that Mm -hmm. situation. But whether you are or not is fundamentally unknowable, right? Because unless you know the truth in the population, you don't know if you're making an accurate inference or not making an accurate inference. Mm -hmm. This is as you go back is I'm with you on this even though you're being very rigid and argumentative (laughs) and keep moving the goalposts on me, all of Uh which I admire, is you don't know. We live by the probability sword and we die by the probability sword. Maybe you made the correct conclusion. Maybe you didn't. But if you have a small sample and you move from a Z to a T, that is less of a threat. That particular threat to statistical conclusion validity has been lessened if
0: you move to a proper sampling distribution. There's something that you said in there that I liked, and that was that you said conclusion validity. And I think that might be the crux of how we're approaching this differently, because I see there is a distinction between conclusion validity and statistical conclusion validity. The statistical part to me adds the fuzz factor around it. So a conclusion might be valid or invalid, but for me, I think about it as sort of a long-run expectation kind of problem. Whether we have heteroskedasticity and we're assuming homoscedasticity, whether we have non-independence when we assume independence, we still might get the right conclusion in a particular study. But the long-run expectation that we get the right conclusion has been altered. And that for me is the thing that I find intolerable from a statistical standpoint, and that we have to refine our models so that when we say 0.824 power, we actually mean 0.824 power. Or if we say 0.05 type one error rate, we actually mean 0.05 type one error rate. From a statistical standpoint, type one errors and type two errors are always going to be with us. They're like the herpes of the statistical world. (laughs) You might be able to control them to some extent, but they're going to flare up from time to time. Was that too much information? Yes. I- <laughs> But I accept that. And what I don't accept are the things that we fail to do to stay in alignment with what that contract is. And that contract is 0.824 power, or that contract is alpha equals 0.05. And the things that you described on that list are the things for me that from a statistical standpoint, really start to throw that out of kilter. They change the deal. And that I don't like.
2: Okay, so a couple of points. One, Mm -hmm. you made up yet another kind of validity. Now we have conclusion validity. <laughs> All right. Second, I can't speak for Shittish Cooking, Campbell nor would I ever try. But my view of their architecture of this is the macro concept is conclusion validity. Mm -hmm. What do you walk away from having learned, right? Mm -hmm. One of the magical questions that you can ask in any defense meeting when you haven't read the document is this is really wonderful work. Tell me what is the biggest thing you've learned from this yourself at the end of this process? Mm-hmm. If anybody asks that question at a defense meeting, it means they didn't read the document. <laughs> All right. Don't give away the secrets. This <laughs> macro construct is conclusion validity. I think the internal external construct statistical is a way of organizing the different dimensions of that and the unique threats that are associated with the different dimensions of that. And they Mm -hmm. all intersect in trying to do the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That is the approximate truth of an inference and Mm -hmm. whether that be related to internal aspects Right the reason they came up with that term was internal was within the study external is beyond the study mm-hmm. construct and then statistical and so I totally agree with you I just find this a useful subdividing mm-hmm. where we can say what are different ways you could screw up as a scientist mm-hmm. and statistical <laughs> conclusion are simply that part of the cheesecake factory 28 page menu <laughs> That you turn to and you say, oh, so here's a whole list of things where I can screw up my inference that I'm making about something that is very important to me. And these are really good to have all on this one page. And you flip a page and there's a whole nother list of things where you can screw up in some other way. My God, if you think about science as a cheesecake factory menu... <laughs> We wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. Uh The number of ways that we can make mistakes.
0: Ooh, cheesecake. Wait, what did you say?
2: (laughs) I lost you, didn't I? I got to tell you, I liked that place way more before they started putting the calories of each item on the menu. What? I'm like, yeah, I'll just have a bowl of ice, please.
0: One of their slices of cheesecake has something like 3,000? Yeah, it's It's like a day and a
2: half of caloric intake. (laughs) Not kidding. Yeah. I mean, a typical person has what? Something like 2,000 calorie intake between 1,500 and 2,000.
0: And you get a slice of cheesecake that's 2,800 calories. All right. So I like the list of things that you laid out. I mean, honestly, if you have the wrong model, that's a problem. And a lot of the things that you describe fall under wrong model. And I use the term model very broadly because the model to me includes not just the arrows that you draw to connect variables, which is definitely relevant for the things that we're talking about here. But the model also includes the data model that we assume, right? What our test statistics assume about the data, all of that to me is part of the model. And so statistical conclusion validity as that list Enumerates to me in some ways comes down to bad things happen when you have the wrong model, right? And that can lead us to making inaccurate inferences. Is that fair or not fair?
2: No, it's exactly right. And to be pedantic almost to a fault, which is one of my genetic characteristics, it's a gift. It's a gift. So I told this story once on a prior episode where I screwed up. I didn't develop a final problem set for a class, and Mm -hmm. I panicked, and I had them do a couple of journal article reviews, and it was a total throwaway, and it is now a part of every class I teach. Yeah. I teach approaching a review through these different kinds of validity, Mm -hmm. and I talk about statistical conclusion validity is what you look through when you read the results section. That to me is Mm -hmm. a highlight of just the, organizational rubric of these are arbitrary boundaries between validities. Why do you drive at 16 and not 15 and not 17? Because it's 16. You have to make these arbitrary distinctions. And these are the ways that you can screw up in your results section. When you move to your discussion, that's a different set of those subtypes of validity that now become more salient.
0: You know, one of the things that this reminds me of is the whole area of researcher degrees of freedom and the kinds of things that people do along the way. And I mean along the way, as in not necessarily planned to do, that can really throw all of this out of kilter. So you have the list of things that you want your students to look for when you're doing a review of a particular manuscript. But what about all those things that researchers do that they should document, but they don't document? To me, that's a real problem when it comes to statistical conclusion validity. There was a paper written... I don't know, maybe it was, I'll say five years ago, but it could be 15 years ago. But it showed that if you make decisions on the fly, such as, hey, we decided we're going to throw a covariate in there, or, hey, we decided we're not going to look at all the groups we looked at, we're just going to isolate a couple of groups of interest, or, hey, we're going to gather a little bit more data, or, you know, these kinds of decisions that someone might make on the back end. Jacked up a type 1 error rate from something like a nominal 0.05 up to something like 60%. That to me can be some of the most egregious behavior when it comes to what is the contract we have with regard to type 1 error or with regard to power and those kinds of things that researchers do on the fly and don't report. That to me could be potentially extremely problematic.
2: Absolutely. And that was where Samantha Anderson, when we were chatting with her, talked about that Mm. as one of the drivers of the replication crisis or the replication dilemma. Is that what she called it, I think? And I would say many of those things completely overlap with some of what is in Shadish, but also in my own yellow sticky list Mm -hmm. of, you know, model building, chasing modification indices, all of these things. And indeed, that is very strongly related to the whole move in pre-registration and that entire, you know, direction of science, which I see advantages but also disadvantages because you and I have talked in the past about, yes, you need to follow that contract. You need Mm -hmm. to follow the rules that you agreed to going into it. But at the same time, what we do is complicated and you need to be able – To deal in a zone defense that if a tight end comes across the middle of the field, somebody's going to pick him up. And whether that be an outlier or whether that be a nonlinear effect that you didn't expect or whether that be whatever, that you need to have that flexibility to incorporate that. And what you and I have agreed on in the past is that's okay as long as you unambiguously document that and convey that to the reader. And what overlaps All of this in this incredibly important patina, we can't lose sight of replication. That, ow, I just kicked something (laughs) with my foot. I didn't even mean to. I wasn't even angry. The need to replicate and build that cumulative science. I think a common denominator in a lot of what our field is struggling with right now is the view that a given study is a one and done. Mm -hmm. We are so pressured to say, what is the unique contribution? How does this add in a way that hasn't been seen before? You talk to a meta-analyst and a study is a datum. A study is a single observation in a sample of studies. I think our life would be much improved if we tried to back away from this notion that my study has established that X
0: leads to Y. There's so much good stuff in what you've said there. One of the things that you mentioned triggered something inside me in a good way. You said something about modification indices. For those of you who don't deal with modification indices, the idea is that you make a change to what you're doing based on the data that you have. Even if you don't know what modification indices Are in the context where we usually deal with them, structural equation modeling. There are other examples where you make these on-the-fly kinds of decisions. One of the most obvious ones, I think, is when someone is proceeding with a study and they decide along the way, oh, we better get some more subjects. We got a P of 0.07. You know, we're close. Let's get some more people. Let's get some more people. Let's see if we can bump that up to P equals 0.049. Those sequential kinds of decisions, for example, to gather more data, where you're actually peeking at your data to make a decision about what you're going to do about your data. Another example, and this is going to feel very counterintuitive, has to do with our testing of assumptions. You know, we talk a lot in statistics about meeting the assumptions for the statistical models that we have. One of the ironies is that when you test those assumptions, first of all, you are almost always hoping for something not to be significant. So I do a Levine's test or some version of that to test for heterogeneity of variance. And if it's non-significant, you go, I'm in good shape there or you do some Kolmogorov-Smirnov test of normality or something... And you find out that you don't reject normality. So then you claim, hey, I've got normality. But the point I'm trying to make here is that when we use characteristics of our data to make decisions about what we're going to do, it can't help but alter the statistical contract that we have, whether that statistical contract revolves around power or type one error. If you make a decision based on your data that is a fork in the road that leads you to do one thing or another, then that is part of the process that's involved. And so whether it's gathering more data because, oh, things are close or doing some test associated with assumptions and using that to make decisions, or as you and I in our world, we look at the fit and we go, damn, it's not quite close enough. But hey, look at those modification indices. All of a sudden, the p-values that we're talking about are no longer the real p-values, right? There are these conditional kinds of p-values, whether they're conditional upon modifications or conditional upon preliminary tests or conditional upon having selected a model from among a set of models and then said, okay, now let's interpret the results that we have here. To me, even though a lot of those things make sense and maybe even might yield the right conclusion in the end, they change what the probabilities are associated with the things that we're observing. One area where I think we are underdeveloped is the formal incorporation of those kinds of database decision structures into the contract of what it is we're doing into our assessment of whether it's p values or power. And then also, as you said, being completely honest about what we're doing, right? Being completely candid. So I think there's a lot of database decision making that is going on. And I completely want us to have the flexibility to do that. The pre-registration issue for me is that I don't want to see someone completely hemmed in where they can't learn from something that's going on, but they have to in the end say so. When we start making decisions about the tests that we're going to do based on the data that we hold in our hand, rather than about some other pilot sample, that really needs to be factored into what we do. Otherwise, I think it's messing with our statistical conclusion validity.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with that. All those things that you described, I would add to my yellow sticky if there was any space left (laughs) as threats to statistical conclusion validity. What I'm thinking about now is, okay, so what, right? (laughs) Yet again, what is our Mm -hmm. point? And we never have one going in at the beginning of the recording episode, and we kind of count on uh-huh. one or the other to maybe I come feel up it. with one. And Do you have it? Any have loyal it? listeners will know we're not always successful. But what is the point then? All right, it's fine. We probably didn't need an hour on don't screw up your statistics. <laughs> so just trying to share airtime a little bit, what would you say? the point of this episode is
0: so first and foremost raising awareness of statistical conclusion validity for people who hadn't really thought about it that's step one step two talking about some of the agreed upon elements of statistical conclusion validity which i think in the end can be summarized as (laughs) would you say like bad things that (laughs) you do to make the statistics not work out
2: i don't remember my voice being
0: quite like that but i think i nailed it I nailed it. But also maybe framing it more broadly in terms of the kinds of behaviors that we have in a research context that can alter the statistical contract. The kinds of decisions that we make, I'm so sorry to say, are not usually motivated by a desire to get the right answer. I think a lot of our world is set up so that we're motivated to yield a positive answer or an effect. It seems that our goal is often good fit and significance rather than fidelity to whatever is going on. Sometimes bad fit is the right answer. Sometimes non-significance is the right answer. And unfortunately, a lot of the decisions that we make along the way that can jeopardize our statistical conclusion validity tend to lead us in one particular direction. So I think one of the points of this episode is to just be aware of some of the things that we might do along the way that can be tilting the tables in some way that advantages or disadvantages us from getting the correct answer.
2: That's exactly what I was thinking. That was my (laughs) point. Exactly. I agree. Again, if there's one walkaway point that I would want to have for myself as much as anyone else is our goal, particularly as quantitative methodologists, but writ large of researchers in any area, we're trying to make a conclusion about the presence or absence or relative magnitude of an observed effect. And we're trying to draw some inference from that. Whether it be Mm -hmm. as simple as a bivariate correlation or as complex as a Bayesian finite mixture model, we are Mm -hmm. still trying to say, in sum, the results from our study indicate that what? What do they indicate? And this cluster of threats to making an accurate inference in finishing that sentence, we've talked about today in terms of those that are related to the actual analysis of the data. And we can talk about all sorts of other threats that have come up. We have in some ways, and there are others that we could still talk about. But when you have your box full of lenses that you can pick up and look at your paper through. Mm -hmm. And there are a box of these, and they all are different types of perspectives that we can get. This one is you pick up the lens and look at your manuscript and say, did I do as good a job as I possibly could to reduce these threats. That's mm-hmm. how I often will teach it, is here are the clear and present danger threats, and what can you do to reduce those in your paper? Some we can take away entirely. The vast majority, we can only make them smaller. And what have you done to reduce those threats? To acceptable levels, right? Sure, but sometimes maybe they're not acceptable, but they're lower than they would be
0: otherwise. I really do like all of the things that you said. It hurts to say that to some extent. And in what you said, there was something that I think we haven't touched on, and I don't feel a need to unpack it too much, but I do want to make sure that it's underscored. And that is that statistical conclusion validity, in the end, whether or not you and I agree on the exact meaning of it, in the end, it's not just about yes, no decisions, but it's also about the estimation of these particular effects facts and so far, we were talking a lot about yes, no kinds of decisions, but it's also about the ability to accurately estimate the effects and relations that are there.
2: And what's nice is, again, my feet are on my desk and I don't want to reach over and pick up the book, so I'm going to go colloquially. Cook and Campbell define statistical conclusion validity as having two components, one of which is related to is there a numerical relation between X and Y and what is the magnitude of that effect? Mm-hmm. And I think that overlaps with what you just said. And one of the core of their arguments is get away from the world of binary, that I found an effect or I did not find an effect, Mm -hmm. and move toward interval estimation or bringing in uncertainty, respecting sampling variability. I think your conclusion was very nicely articulated, and I would think that Cook and Campbell would agree with that.
0: Excellent. Excellent. And what about John Stuart Mill over there?
2: I'm trying to put his thorax back. If anybody <laughs> knows where a thorax goes, if you could email me, I would appreciate
0: it. <laughs> All right. One in the can, man. How many are we going to do this season? I was thinking three. <laughs> As both of our
2: spouses have said almost in identical words, may I quote, so this is what you do now? <laughs> That's exactly And damn it, this is what we do now. This is what we do now. Thank you, everybody. We are so happy to have you back for season three. And we are really excited to talk to you again in the future.
0: Absolutely. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your back-to-school entertainment, and do please leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter, we are at QuantitudePod, or visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get amazing Quantitude merch to celebrate the start of the new semester at RedBubble.com, where all proceeds go to donors choose to support remote access in low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude, the audio equivalent of subscribing to The New Yorker magazine, where you sincerely intend on reading every issue, but somehow end up tossing an entire pile of them unopened into the recycling bin every few months. Quantitude is brought to you by the Delta and Lambda Variants, committed to bringing you the full 12-matrix COVID-inspired LISRL notational system by early 2022. By dang, did everybody see that coming from a acountrymileaway.com, where for $5, you can buy into the betting pool to predict the exact date on which your university will return to fully online instruction. And by recordings made at the onset of the pandemic in March of 2020. In a matter of weeks, things will at least begin to right themselves, and in a matter of months, we'll be getting back to life as we once knew it. As if you weren't already embarrassed by the ridiculous things you say in person, now they are recorded and posted online forever. This is most definitely not
1: NPR.